0: Our lesson for consideration today comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Again, the topic today, the theme is youth and maturity. And about that topic, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy the following. He says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. Things that are taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain kinds of foods, uh, which God actually created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God in prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, Timothy, You will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come." Very key idea in faith, uh, in maturity there. Not thinking merely about the, the moment right now. Kids have trouble thinking consequentially in long-term. Somebody who is mature thinks long-term consequences. Believers are to think far beyond this life in order to have good perspective in this life. Physical training is of some value, but godliness is value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the savior of all people and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things, Timothy. Don't let anyone look down upon you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to preaching and teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands upon you, appointing him to be the bishop of the church in Ephesus. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word. Again, for the past month or so, we've been looking at this series on 1st and 2nd Timothy, subtitled, you know, Pragmatism for Young Ministers, in part because we're all sort of cosmically young uh, in the grand scheme of our eternal existence, but we're also all called to ministry. It's part of being part of the universal priesthood. I'm not going to rehash all of what that all means. That was back in our first week. But in this particular week, in chapter 4, we're getting to this section where we get one of those theme verses. One of the theme verses is that Paul says to Timothy, do not let anyone look down upon you because you are young. And there is a truism embedded in this point uh, that is essentially getting older does not make you more spiritually mature. Okay, Getting older physically might make you more mature in this lifetime in some respects. Just an age, just a number, does not make you more spiritually mature. Uh, In fact, I have worked with a number of young adults throughout the years, like many, many, who at some point, they go through sort of this shocking experience, and it's almost sort of an alarming, weird moment where they realize that if you are spiritually engaged as like a 20-something, there's a decent chance that you sort of outpace spiritual maturity of, if you have a parent who is, let's say, you know, 40, 50, 60, 70, and they're kind of nominally and culturally Christian, if you're actively engaged as a 20-something in your faith, there's a chance that you might spiritually uh, outpace them in maturity. And it almost sort of is shocking to the system. I remember, for instance, a young man that I counseled many years ago Who had a very important life decision that he had to make. He wasn't quite sure what to do and he was looking for some advice and he came to me and one of the things that we do, one of the things in counseling I try to do is not just tell people, here's exactly what you should do, here's how you should live your life. We try to open scripture and say, here's some biblical principles that address your situation. We did exactly that and after doing that, he rightly came to the conclusion, the Spirit led him to the conclusion, that one of the options that he was considering very clearly contradicted God's revealed will. And so he came to that conviction and he was confident walking out of there and then he went and talked to his parents and his parents gave him some extraordinarily worldly advice that completely contradicted everything that we had just talked about in our meeting. It was, it was, very, it was worldly advice completely opposed to what God's revealed will was. I cannot tell you how many times that has happened to me over the course uh, of ministry years so far. And honestly, going into ministry originally, I absolutely knew that I was going to have to shepherd a lot of young adults away from temptations in life. What I didn't plan on in the 21st century is that I was going to actually have to guide young adults sometimes who are spiritually active to defy their sort of socially religious parents. Getting older doesn't in and of itself make you more spiritually mature. Humility, repentance, and experiences of God's grace, that makes you more spiritually mature. Obedience to spiritual disciplines and fostering Christ-like character, that makes you spiritually mature. Uh, The Apostle Paul talks to Timothy, who is leading a congregation that in many ways is a lot older than him, about spiritual maturity in this section, and we're going to walk through it in these four points. Number one, uh, verses one through seven a, uh, he talks about you got to watch out for deceiving spirits in the congregation. Number two, in verses seven b through ten, he talks about Timothy train yourself spiritually. Number three, in verses eleven to sixteen, he talks about spiritual sophistication. And finally, we're going to talk say something about the maturity of our Savior. Okay, so deceiving spirits, personal training. Spiritual sophistication and the Savior's maturity. First of all, deceiving spirits. Right from the jump, this is what the Apostle Paul has to say to Timothy. He says, the Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. What's that mean? He doesn't mean there's going to be a a surgeon like, Wiccanism, you know? That's not what he's saying. Uh, He says that there are going to be people who present themselves as authorities in your life, whose consciences have been seared, who Satan uses, and they don't even realize it, to bring thoughts into the world that shape your loves and shape your desires. Let me put this in a little bit different way. Demons do not try to communicate to you by way of Ouija boards and seances. Not primarily. Demons primarily try to communicate to you and shape your desires by way of social media influencers and self-help gurus. They're trying to foster and condition your loves and your attitudes and your desires. And Paul says that there's there's even gonna be people who rise up within the church who leverage the name of Jesus Christ in order to try to promote their own nice-sounding, horribly destructive messages. I see this thing posted online all the time, things posted by Christians that, it's not that they're 100% false, it's that they're only like 75% true. And that's what makes them dangerous because it's like warped truth like the illusion of truth, which by the way, that's exactly how Satan works, a fallen angel. That's how he works. Uh, his, the word devil literally means deceiver, and he brings deceptive messages into the world through liars who don't really know what they're doing, but it's leading people away, and sometimes their messages sound wiser to our flesh than the gospel itself. Now, the particular things that Paul mentions that are going on in the church in Ephesus at the time uh, are, so if you're like a philosophy student, it's it's called Jewish legalism and Eastern asceticism, but specifically the charges are these. Uh, He says, there are certain people who think they're spiritual authorities who are forbidding marriage and they are telling you to abstain from eating certain kinds of foods. Now, those are specific examples for a larger point, but actually even those specific examples, um, I don't, we're not going to name any names here today, but like, It's not that hard to think of some people, including overtly religious people, who sort of unbiblically get moralistic about marriage or unbiblically get moralistic. Does anybody today in the world get moralistic about what kinds of foods you're allowed to eat? Uh, Jump down to verse 7 and he says, And there's also going to be people who present old wives' tales, godless myths, rumors are there any people today, including overtly religious people, who are potentially obsessed with various conspiracies in life? In my devotional reading this past week, I was in the book of Isaiah, and I was in Isaiah chapter 8 when I was studying this text that day, and it just kind of jumped out at me. God says to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah eight twelve, do not call conspiracy everything that this people likes to call conspiracies. Let me put this in a different way. Christians don't chase UFOs. You know Why? There's a bunch of different reasons why you shouldn't chase UFOs. One of the reasons, you already believe something that the rest of the watching world thinks sounds absolutely insane. You believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, literally resurrected from the grave. The rest of the world, the non-believing world, thinks that sounds insane. If you add to that things about UFOs, it makes it much easier for the rest of the world to dismiss your belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as, well, that person just believes all sorts of different crazy things. Right? Do you see how enormously practical this is that Paul's saying? Satan and fallen angels roam around the world working through wise-sounding experts and he says, Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. Satan works his lies into the world through false teachers. This is, by the way, the reason why John, in his first epistle, he sort of famously says, test the spirits. Anybody who presents themselves as an authority in life, test the spirits. Why doesn't he say, check their credentials? You know, see where their degrees are from. Check their citations in all of their work. He doesn't say that. He says, test the spirits. Why? Because these false messages that they're presenting don't come from them. They're the mediums. Mediums not like looking into a crystal ball mediums. Mediums as the conduits that Satan tries to use to get false messages that pull people away from biblical truth out into the world. I don't know if it fits specifically here, but there's a specific example I want to get to here in a second. And uh, somebody recently told me, a member in the congregation, mentioned that when she was at work, she was in the break room. And uh, she had a a plastic bottle, and I think it was a plastic bottle that had one of those little like plastic uh, things that you put six packs in, you know, and that people are always concerned that they're gonna get, uh, like seagulls gonna get caught in them on the beach and things like that, rightfully concerned. So we recycle things like that. But she was walking with this plastic bottle over to the uh, waste bin, which had recycling and just a garbage. And a male coworker in there, as she was walking over, said to her, don't you dare throw that in the garbage. Kind of judgy, but don't you dare throw it in the garbage. This exact same male co-worker she told me the week prior had been joking to her about his girlfriend's abortion. Now, I I don't want to slip into being judgy here either, but I want you to understand how Satan works. Satan is not only a deceiver that tempts you into sin. Satan's name means he's also an accuser that is constantly trying to shame you including for unjust things. So you can't feel bad all the time about things that a world tells you to feel bad about, right? You have to adjust your conscience according to what scripture actually says. Um, And and actually, what's also interesting here is Paul specifically says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. That's a a double entendre. Uh, Basically, it means two things. Seared with a hot iron, means anything can become calloused. Your flesh, if you've burned your hand before and lost nerves, endings, and and sensation. uh, If you sin willfully in the same direction repeatedly, eventually you become numb to that. Uh, You don't even feel guilt anymore. So that's part of the cauterization. The other thing is that, that word here that's used for searing is the same word used in Greek for a branding iron. So like when you brand cattle, And what he's suggesting is that these people, through their willful impenitence, are suggesting that, at least for the time being, they are marked as owned by Satan right now. Okay? This is how false teachings get into this particular role. By the way, this is why you have to test spirits for anything and everything. Everything you study in life, read in life, consume in life, uh, the pastors that you listen to in life, everything should be run through the filter of Scripture. If I cannot tell you every time, chapter and verse, where I'm getting the ideas of what I am sharing with you. Remove me from this position because I'm not good for you or anyone. Test the spirits, don't get deceived by everything that sounds sweet out there, okay? So that's what Paul says to Timothy as advice. The second thing he tells him for advice is personal training. Uh, And in verse seven he says, train yourself to be godly. And the word for training here is the Greek word gymnazo, it's where we get our word gymnasium from. And the Greco-Romans at that time, they loved their athletic contests. We love our athletic contests too. But a fitness center is actually a fantastic way of illustrating spiritual training. Because if you've ever done any like weightlifting before, one of the things that you know is there's a lot of lifts that are core lifts for developing functional strength in life. So uh, bench press, sit-ups, uh, squats. These are things that, they're functional strength. So. They're not easy, but if you push yourself through them, through the exertion of doing those exercises, you are guaranteed you will get stronger and you will get healthier. That's just the way you're designed. That, as long as you do it right, that's the way it works. On the other hand, there's other things, everybody knows this, that you can do in the gym that uh, kind of help you look better, but don't actually provide a whole lot of functional strength. These are the show-me muscles, right? Like, so uh, guys in the 80s were sort of notorious for only developing their upper bodies, So every guy was working on his delts and his traps and his buys and his tries and his pecs and and whatever, and then he didn't do anything with his legs and so he's walking around on these toothpick chicken legs all the time, he's like really toned upper half. Uh, There are show me spiritual muscles too. People who uh, love Bible trivia aren't necessarily always super spiritually mature. Those are show me muscles sometimes, okay? There's also always been in the history of lifting weights con men who try to produce things that don't actually deliver what they say they're going to deliver. This is how the infomercial was invented by and large. Uh, but if you think about those like old timey black and white videos with uh, the big vibrating belt, uh, and a, a guy with a big beer gut would put it around and he would just stand there shaking. And the, for years, people were doing this. They were assuming this is going to get me in shape. And I'll tell you what, we look at that, that's old and stupid. In modern, in, the, in 2023, I can find you more than two dozen of these little electric pulse things that you can put on your stomach for abdominal work and they send electric pulses and they like do crunches for you and the advertisement is usually a guy eating a pizza, laying on a couch, watching a football game and he's getting in shape, just laying there, right? (laughs) It sounds, every time I see one of those advertisements, I have to tell myself, wait a second, am I sure this doesn't work? Like, it would be real nice if this works. Like, it's 50 bucks, should I just try it just to, It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But I almost buy it because, you know why? Because I want to believe it's true. Sometimes we believe things simply because our flesh wants them to be true. Spiritually speaking, there is almost an exhausting amount of Christian self-help literature out there that is trying to present an avenue of Christ-likeness that is a pathway other than just picking up your cross and following Jesus. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's lies. What does Paul say? He says, actually, to become more godly, you have to labor and strive. Uh, He says, that is why we labor and strive because we have put our hope in a living God. Christian discipleship is not easy. It's rewarding. It's not easy. It's rewarding. It's worthwhile. It's labor and the word for striving there is actually where we get our English word agonizing from. Christian discipleship, yeah, it's labor and striving, but we do it because it's worth it. And we can do it because we have energy that comes from hope of a resurrected Lord. We know that the final victory is already won. We know where we're gonna spend eternity. We know we have good things coming to us through Jesus. And that gives us energy to do the difficult things in life right now that we call ministry. It's training. It's training yourself to be God. Let me show you something real quick. Um, I don't know if you'll be able to see it from where you are. You know what this is? Believe it or not, this is a phone. This is a phone, it's not a toy phone. It doesn't function much better than one, a toy phone. But it, it's not a toy phone, it's a real phone that can makes, fo- makes phone calls and texts and stuff like that. It's called a light phone. Uh, the tagline for it is it'll help you get your life back. I am not endorsing it, it is way inferior to my iPhone. Way, it doesn't even come close. The iPhones are such a beautiful piece of machinery. Um, this is not. But people have asked me, like, okay, so do you like it? And I'm like, I don't think that's the right question, at least not for me. The filter of life is not simply, do I like this? Do I like this? Do I like... The question for me on this is, does it help me become more Christ-like? Fact of the matter is, I'll tell you what, I I hesitate, you know, I've mentioned this before, I hesitate to share some personal struggles with you, because you don't want to, like, hurt your message. But I had a problem. Frankly, I... I'll I'll summarize it like this. I could not go to bed at night without checking my email. I couldn't do it. Every single night, right before bed, I was compelled, like I couldn't, as I was setting my alarm, could not help myself from checking my email. And invariably, I would feel this overwhelming sense of uh, discontentment and unaccomplished tasks. And if I happened to get emails that had complaints in them, and church people don't use the word complaint. They say concerns. Church people have a lot of concerns about things, right? Uh, I would sometimes lay in bed at night, like thinking, I need to do something. I need to address this. I need to, and I couldn't, I couldn't stop. If somebody says, okay, just don't check your phone um, or put some settings on your phone, not to, I would say, with all due respect, I don't think you know how the flesh and addiction works. I couldn't not check my phone. Uh, My wife and I would be having dinner, and she'd get up and go, and the first thing that I ever did, I would always grab my phone and look at it. Always. In fact, the first 48 hours that I had this thing were absolutely infuriating. Um, I was literally, like, jonesing for sports updates and uh, scores and email efficiency. I had to cut part of myself off in order to not be, be mastered by something in my life. Is it fun? No. Is it helping me become more Christ-like? I hope so. It's training. It's laboring. It's striving. It's intensive. Godliness is always worth it. It's always worth it. Which brings us to the next point. Really, the, the verse that we've referenced several times that is sort of a theme verse for 1 Timothy, where in verse 12, Paul says to him, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. This is a quintessential example in scripture of how the culture that we live in tends to create a lens through which we perceive all things, including scripture. I guarantee, if I read this passage here today, a hundred people, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. A hundred people, especially if they're young adults, they'll say, what this means is, Paul is telling Timothy, uh, stand up for yourself. Fight back against anybody who dismisses you because of your youth. That's not what it means. You think it means that, Because you have a feisty American spirit where we tend to hypervalue autonomy and personal rights. But that's not actually what it means. You know what it actually means? Don't give anyone a reason to look down upon you because of the stupidity of your youth. Now, you say, well, you think it means that. I think it means that. How do you know that you're right? All you have to do is really keep reading the verse. Because Paul says, Then, but set an example for believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and in purity. In other words, look at what he doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but stand up for yourself. He doesn't say that. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Don't let anyone, don't give anyone a reason to look down on you because of your immaturity but be a leader, be a model of godliness and then, regardless of your age, they won't have any reasons to look down on you because of your youth. Humans have this tendency, we, we make generalizations, when they get really bad, they become prejudices. And we do them about a bunch of things. Sometimes we do them about age, sometimes we do them about ethnicity, sometimes we do them about gender. Paul is saying, when it regards your youthfulness, Timothy, don't feed that stereotype. Don't give other people a reason to look down on you because, oh yeah, they're just young and they don't know what they're talking about. Don't give them that opportunity. Martin Luther actually said something extraordinarily similar to this at one point in time he said, it is not our job to forbid detractors to despise us. That is an old-timey way of saying haters gonna hate, right? That's all that is. Haters gonna hate. Don't give, it's not our job to forbid detractors to despise us, but it is our job not to give others an opportunity to despise us. Some of you might know the name John Perkins. John Perkins is a minister who's worked in some of the poorest locations in the country. Very influential minister. He uh, was a a spiritual advisor during several different presidential administrations. He's written a bunch of really good books. Um, In one of his books, he tells the example of a San Francisco school teacher who did an uh, experiment in her classroom. And the experiment was this. She asked all her kids, raise your hand for one or the other. You get to have one or the other. Would you rather have a lollipop today or an ice cream sandwich tomorrow. What she sort of unexpectedly found out when she wasn't, she didn't even anticipate this, was most of the poorest kids in her class, her class, raised their hand for a lollipop today. And most of the kids who came from a wealthier background who had had experiences of like, delayed gratification in their lives, most of them raised their hands for an ice cream sandwich tomorrow. And what John Perkins goes on to say is he says, even at an early age, This survivalist poverty mentality, that's what he called it, survivalist poverty mentality was trapping the minds of many American children. That is actually something that's very difficult to overcome socially, but it's also a beautiful illustration of what every single one of us is by nature. Every, if we're totally honest with ourselves, every one of us, our flesh, what we're basically trying to do when we wake up in the morning is we're trying to squeeze as much possible pleasure out of this lifetime as we can possibly get. What is that? Survivalist poverty mentality. We've forgotten eternity. We've forgotten we're going to live forever. We think that this is all there is. It's understandable, but it's immature. See? So that brings us to the final point about the maturity of the Savior, whose maturity saves us and also then informs us. So here's what we've said so far, real briefly. Number one, Satan's pathway to deceiving us comes through sweet-sounding worldly experts that say things that aren't quite the Bible. Number two, biblical discipleship means training yourself with a regimen of diet and exercise, just like a professional athlete trains themselves, him or herself, with a regimen of diet and exercise. It's, It's worthwhile blood, sweat, and tears. Number three, uh, leading others spiritually really requires a lifestyle by which other people can't just easily dismiss you for obvious immaturities in your life. But one thing I want you to think about, it's worth mentioning, is that we're not, when we train ourselves, we're not primarily training for a sprint. We're training for a marathon. Put it in a different way, we're cosmically young. You and I, regardless of what age you are right now, you are cosmically young. You know why? because let's say for instance eternity is a billion years. Eternity by definition is way more than a billion years, but for you can comprehend sort of a billion. If eternity is a billion years and you have an 80 year lifespan here on Earth on average, you know what 80 years next to a billion years looks like? Let's put it visually in terms of like uh, distance. From New York to LA, the continental US is about just under 3,000 miles. If that was a billion years, you know what 80 years would be? Right here. It's 1.2 feet. If you're 80 years old, that's how old you are in comparison to the United States, in comparison to eternity. You're a cosmic baby. All of us. All of us are cosmic babies. Now, I don't say that to let us off the hook of the sins of spiritual immaturity. But I do say it to convince us that not a single one of us, no matter what age you are or how mature you are, is capable of producing the spiritual maturity that salvation requires. Thank God our salvation is not based on our spiritual maturity. Thank God our salvation is based on the one person who is always the one adult in every room. The one who existed before time began, the one who always did the will of his heavenly father. Thank God for the God-man who was his spiritual maturity led him to switch places with us to take what we deserved. He's the only person who has ever been able to solve the riddle of death, the only one that wise. And uh, somebody recently shared with me a portion of the commencement service message at Hillsdale College this year from a Bishop Robert Barone. Bishop Robert Barone um, was a minister who, who gave the commencement address and he said something about Christ's maturity that completely struck me. He put it like this. He said, My intellectual hero, St. Thomas Aquinas, said that if we want to live a happy life, we should love what Jesus loved on the cross and despise what he despised on the cross. Well, what did he despise but all of those objects of false worship to which we tend to erect altars, our idols. Many of us worship wealth but on the cross, he was utterly poor, stripped naked. Many of us worship pleasure, but on the cross, Jesus was at the limit of suffering, both physical and psychological. Many of us worship power, but on the cross, Jesus was nailed in place, unable to even move, immobile. Many of us worship honor, but on that terrible cross, Jesus was the object of scorn and ridicule. In short, the crucified Lord said no as radically as possible to the idols of this world. But what did he love on the cross? He loved doing the will of the Father. And the cross itself functioned as the altar on which the sacrifice of his life to the Father took place. And that is really well stated with just one exception. Yes indeed, Jesus loved the Father's will on the altar, but he didn't just love like some abstract commands of the Father's will. In other words, the better statement is not what did Jesus love on the cross? The better statement is who did Jesus love on the cross? And the who is you and me. The maturity of Jesus' love led him to switch places with us at that cross, to die in our place for immature, young, foolish, regrettable, rebellious, childlike mistakes. But he did it and he would do it all again because he loves us that much. At the cross, yes, his will focused on the Father's will, but the Father's will centered completely on us. So Jesus held his tongue. He did the right thing. He accepted consequences in our place that he didn't deserve. His maturity saved us from every immature, stupid mistake. And now, you know, you and I, we've only traveled this far, but we're determined to learn to walk. And so we train ourselves, we disciple ourselves with God's word, and God has us on a discipleship path that leads us to self-control, courage, confidence, and faith. Christ Jesus makes us Christ-like by having removed all our sins, gifted to us all his righteousness, and right now he is mentoring us into mature people of God. Let's close the prayer. Lord Jesus, guard us from hypocrisy. Whatever age we are, whether the world would consider us younger or older, it doesn't matter. At any age, as long as we're on this planet, we've got room to grow. Help us to mature spiritually. Let our neighbors see the sincerity of our love, the beauty of our truth, and the glory of your name. May this glorify your name. Amen.